Blog Talk Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found, God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's peace, P-E-A-C-E, at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through December 2017. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. We return in our study of God's Word this morning to 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as we are fast coming to the conclusion of this wonderful epistle, we find ourselves this morning looking at the text of verses 21 and 22. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. The Apostle Paul writes, But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. A couple of months ago, I had the opportunity, as you know, to drive across America to deliver my son's car to him. And in the process, we were driving through the back roads of Arkansas and rolling along the gentle road that we happened to be on, just a two-lane road through a kind of a misty rain. We were watching the little farmhouses go by along the way, and all of a sudden, after we came over one little hill, there was a big sign that said, Quilts. Well, I had, uh, for a number of years, been nosing around looking for a quilt I might buy for my wife, Patricia. And so I thought, well, I'll stop there and, and see what the quilts look like. And so I pulled into the little dirt area in front of this tiny little house, and I knocked on the door, and a little old lady came to the door, and I said, I was just wondering about your quilts. And she said, oh, please come in. And I walked in, and uh, there were several quilts hanging on some little pieces of wood and draped over them. And off to the left was her husband sitting in a big easy chair with stacks of literature by him and a TV control switch. I don't know that he had moved in decades. <laughs> and I walked in uh, to this kind of musty old house, and she, I said, I'm just kind of interested in quilts. And she said, well, let me show you one. And she pulled out a quilt that, first of all, had no rhyme or reason. It was a, a quilt full of bits and scraps of everything imaginable all sewn together. And I said, no, um, that's really not what I'm looking for. And I described the kind of quilt I was looking for, which, interestingly enough, she had and which I bought and my wife now possesses. But uh, as I, well, I had to go down to a little bank in the town to, to get some cash to come back and, and pay. And when I came back and walked in, we noticed that uh, there, there was a lot of literature everywhere, uh, literature uh, from professors at Dallas Seminary, literature from Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, literature from the Unity Unitarian Fellowship, all kinds of literature and some video cassettes of varying kinds of charismatic ministries. And by then I knew the husband's name was Johnny, which was an interesting coincidence. And I said to him, Johnny, I said, you have an awful lot of of, of information here. Uh, uh, he said, well, there's, there's good in all of it. And I realized that not only did his wife make quilts, but he had a quilted theology. Bits and pieces and scraps of everything all sewn together. That's very typical. Very typical. People reading, listening to television, radio, tapes, with little or no discernment, just kind of quilt patching the whole thing together into some amorphous kind of thing that really has little rhyme or reason. The Apostle Paul in this text is saying, you better examine everything. And you better examine it carefully. And you better find out what is good and hold on to it and what is not and let go of it. That's one of those components in the basics of spiritual living. 
Unfortunately, the church today has boundless credulity. Anything and everything is accepted. It seems to me that if any one problem outstrips all the others in the church, it is the utter lack of spiritual discrimination that characterizes Christianity. Bad decisions, faulty reasoning, superficial understanding, shallow knowledge, widespread ignorance have contributed more anguish to the church throughout her history than all the persecutions combined. Persecutions have taken their toll, but it is the inside chaos and the inside confusion over doctrine that has left the most scars on the church. And this is not only the result of human weakness in discerning truth, but it is the work of Satan who, disguised as an angel of light, wants to confuse us as much as is possible. As a result, most, it seems, today have a patchwork quilt theology that is a mix and match of all kinds of things. Error is not only visible at the basic primitive levels of theology, but at the deeper and more complex levels as well. Now, this this should not happen because we have been duly warned. Scripture warns us of doctrines of demons, destructive heresies, myths, perverse teachings, commandments of men, speculations, controversial issues, deceitful spirits, worldly fables, false knowledge, empty philosophy, traditions of men, worldly wisdom, and it says they are all pitfalls for Christians. Jesus said that wolves would come in sheep's clothing. Paul said, grievous wolves will enter in not sparing the flock. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, and as the age goes on, evil men will get worse and worse, and deception will increase. Paul again said there will be doctrines of demons that will lead people astray. To put it mildly, there is a world of chaos and confusion in the church. No one who understands Scripture and is aware of its warnings about error should ever be so gullible as to say a statement like that man said that day, well, there's good in all of it. We cannot for a moment believe that everyone who claims to be in Christ and to speak on behalf of Christ is speaking the truth. But people seem to be so gullible. In many cases, the church, I think, is, is like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. In Matthew chapter 16, a couple of verses of interest that you might want to note. Matthew 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah, and he left them and went away. He said, your problem is simple. Your limited, primitive, non-scientific knowledge of how to tell the weather exceeds 
your spiritual discernment. What an unbelievable put-down. You don't know much about the weather, and your way of assessing the weather is very primitive, but as little as you know about weather, you know more about that than you do theology. They had no ability to distinguish between the false and the true. And Jesus condemned them for it. And in effect said, I have nothing to offer you. Distinguishing between truth and error is essential in Christian life. That is why Paul says this in this text. Now remember, starting with verse 16, Paul has been listing the basics of Christian living. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise Scripture or the revelation of God. And now he comes to this one, examine everything. This is a masterful summation of all the components in basic Christian living. We are to have constant joy. We are to be in unceasing prayer. We are to be thankful no matter what happens. We are never to quench the working of the Spirit of God. We are never to look down on the revelation of God, but to exalt it and obey it. And we are to examine everything carefully so that we can discern what is good and what is evil. Now, let me have you look at the text for just a few moments because it's fairly easy to interpret. But examine everything, the Greek text says, carefully, as you'll note in the New American Standard is in italics, meaning it was added. The text actually says, but examine everything. The word examine is dakimadzo. That's a familiar word to New Testament students because it is often used to refer to something being tested to reveal its genuineness. It is sometimes used of testing metals. Test everything to see that it is genuine to distinguish between what is true and false, what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, separate the wheat from the chaff. This process, by the way, to borrow Paul's words to the Ephesians, is an effort to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. To distinguish. The word could be to judge. Judge everything, evaluate everything, distinguish everything. And everything means everything, all things. We are to be like King David, who was able to discern, says Second Samuel 14, 17, good from evil. Now, once you've discerned that, what does he say? Verse 21, hold fast to that which is good. Hold fast means to embrace, to embrace wholeheartedly, to take possession of. The word good, that familiar word kalos, means what is in itself good, genuine, true, not just fair to look at, not just lovely and beautiful appearing, but what is inherently genuine, true, noble, right, and good. When you find that, embrace it. Hold on to it. Verse 22 says, abstain from every form of evil. And the word abstain is a very strong word. It means to hold oneself away from. The preposition apa is there. It means to shun. And it emphasizes the complete separation of the believer from what is deemed evil in teaching and behavior. When you see something that is evil, not true, false, shun it. There never is in the Scripture given any latitude for us to expose ourselves to what is not true. We are to shun it. We are to run from it. 
It emphasizes then the complete separation of the believer from what is deemed evil. Evil here is evil in the active sense as something malignant, harmful, working injury and disaster to everyone who touches it. It is poisonous. It is deadly. Stay away from it like you would stay away from a plague. Lenski was correct when he wrote, the worst forms of wickedness consist of perversions of the truth. Spiritual lies, although today many look upon these forms with indifference and regard them rather harmless. The fact that moral perversions are included is self-evident. These also work to destroy the spiritual life and appear in many forms. Yes, in the word evil is moral perversion, but he's right, the worst form of it is the perversion of the truth. Now notice again verse 22. He says you are to shun every form. Every form. The word form there, it's just a simple word. It means kind, sort, species, or shape. He is saying evil in any form, evil in any shape, evil of any sort, evil of any kind. Once you have discerned it, shun it. And yes, that encompasses moral conduct, moral perversion. But the heart of what he is saying here has to do with the perversion of truth. This then becomes primarily for us a call for discernment. A call for discernment. This is not something that is unfamiliar to the student of the New Testament. There are other places in the text where such discernment is called for. In fact, many such statements come from the pen of the Apostle Paul. He is concerned that we be discerning, that we separate. Now, having just given you that glimpse at the text, and that's enough, I want to launch off this morning, and I'm going to begin what will end up being a couple of weeks series. And I want to talk about this matter of discernment because I'm very concerned about it. There is a great lack of discernment in the church, as I have been saying to you, and it shows up in so many ways. The undiscerning contemporary church, for example, has often rejected Darwin and Huxley, but accepted Freud, has often rejected doctrine and favored and embraced relationships as if they were the priority, has become fascinated with entertainment and bored with exposition, has been enamored with feelings and lowered the value of thinking clearly. As a result, evangelical Christianity, listen to this, is fighting for its very life. I'll say that again. Evangelical Christianity, in my view, is fighting for its very life. And our time cries out for people with discernment. Now, the culture around us doesn't help because we live in a very non-discriminating culture. We live in a culture, in fact, that has put a new and unacceptable definition and value on discernment. For example, it can be simply noted that it used to be that when someone was a person of discrimination, that was an indication of their nobility an indication of their wisdom, 
an indication that they were to be honored and respected. They were desirable. That was a person of discrimination, one who could discriminate between good and evil, true and false, what is best. Now a person who discriminates is somebody who's going to get sued by the ACLU. The word has taken on a completely different meaning. It isn't even allowable in our vocabulary. This is a day that will not tolerate absolutes. This is a day that will not tolerate discrimination of any kind. And I'm not talking about racial discrimination, which is intolerable to God. I'm talking about discrimination of any kind. This is not a time that will tolerate convictions. This is not a time that will tolerate dogma. You're seeing that right now as you read the newspapers about Bob Vernon, one of our elders who is assistant chief of police in Los Angeles. It is intolerable to this culture that this man believes the Bible, which affirms the submission of women, the sin of homosexuality, and the need to spank your children. That is intolerable in this culture, along with for all intents and purposes, any other view, because it's a time when you don't discriminate about anything. And so the church is living in a milieu of non-discriminating kind of thought. And we find that that only accelerates our own problem. The church cannot fall prey to the spirit of this age. Now, I want to answer three questions in this series about this matter of discernment. And this morning, I'm going to begin with question number one. Question number one is, why is there such a lack of discernment? I just told you the culture is into that, but why is there such a lack of discernment in the church? Why? And I'm going to try to give you some, some answers. It's not going to be like a normal sermon because I'm, I'm going to be talking in some, in some theological terms and assessing the scenario as I see it in the church. So listen carefully. There are, I believe, some identifiable causes as to why there is such a terrible lack of discernment in the church today. The main one I'll give you first, the weakening of doctrinal clarity and conviction. The weakening of doctrinal clarity and conviction. That's number one. There were much better times in the history of the church when Christians were encouraged to think biblically, to think theologically, to test everything, to search the Scriptures thoroughly, to distinguish carefully its truths, and when discovering what was true, to take a stand and be immovable. Today, those who take firm stands on biblical doctrine are very frequently criticized for splitting hairs and being unloving. Because the norm today is to gaze lazily at the surface of scriptural truth and then even justify such cavalier shallowness as the desirable generosity of spirit toward those who differ. This is rampant in the church. You sort of just scan Scripture, and, uh, and you don't want to be too dogmatic because if you're dogmatic, that's, that's unloving to someone else who has a different opinion. And after all, we certainly don't want to split hairs. J. Adams writes, nowhere is this tendency more apparent than in Christian counseling. He also writes, quote, self-styled experts in psychology, sociology, and education 
who hold PhDs in their fields and Sunday school degrees in Bible pontificate on Christian teaching and life, setting themselves up as spokesmen for God. What he is basically saying, end quote, what he is saying is that the matter of biblical interpretation has been invaded by people who are ill-equipped to do that work. There is a lack of discernment, however, not only in the arena of counseling, but there is a lack of doctrine and conviction in the ministry in general, it seems to me. Sharing has replaced preaching. The other day I was doing a radio interview, and a fellow called... And uh, he said, I've been listening to you for a while, and I just want you to know you're a lot nicer person uh, on the radio today than I thought you were by listening to your sermons. Well, when I preach my sermons, I, I don't think I say so things that aren't nice, because if I did, they would edit them out before the thing ever got on the radio. Uh, and I don't know how he could find out whether I was a nicer person by just listening to me. But what he was really saying was, I was in a conversation with a lady and there was a, a great measure of disagreement and I was trying to be gracious as I could and gentle and, and not strive in handling that situation. And it was much more tolerable to see that than it was to listen to someone articulate with conviction doctrine. And it was much easier for him to handle me having a conversation gently with someone who disagreed than to preach doctrine. That's the mood of our time. As I said, there is a cultural wave behind this. It is not an accident that the church in the name of unity, love, and relationships has moved away from clarity and conviction and doctrine and has begun to favor openness, rejecting narrowness and dogmatism. This has been the prevailing climate and the culture around us. In fact, there's a war on standards. The war on standards is wholesale, isn't it? I mean, if you had a conviction about something, it would have to be utterly arbitrary because there isn't any standard. There's been so much antagonism against convictions just in general in our culture. I don't know if you realize it, but everything is up for grabs. I'm talking about history. Revisionist history has now questioned everything that historians have believed. Science, even in the field of science, they're questioning things that for years have been believed. All beliefs have become only relatively true and only relatively valuable, whether you're talking about sociology, psychology, philosophy, economics, education, or whatever you're talking about. And of course, to the world, religion is the most subjective of all because they believe it's just some personalized experience, not a divine revelation. And so the culture is becoming more and more relativistic, and the church is catching the disease. This trend was visible, by the way, in the church years ago. Last uh, Sunday when I was home with this neck problem and couldn't be with you, I finished reading Volume 2 of Martin Lloyd-Jones' biography. I enjoyed every moment of it and commend all 777 pages to you. But as I was reading the last section of that book, it was interesting for him to say the things that were directly related to this very issue of discernment that, that were recorded there. He saw the trend coming, the trend of relativism in the church and the death of doctrinal clarity back in 1971, 20 years ago, and this is what he said. 
There is a very obvious reaction at the present time against intellectualism. This is found among the students in America and increasingly in this country. Reason is being distrusted and set on one side. Following D.H. Lawrence, many are saying that our troubles are due to the fact that we have overdeveloped our cerebrum. We must listen more to our blood and go back to nature. And so turning against intellectualism and deliberately espousing the creed of irrationality, they yield themselves to the desire for experience and place sensation above understanding. What matters is feeling and enjoyment, not thought. Pure thought leads nowhere, end quote. Twenty years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones saw the movement of relativism coming into the church. Instead of seeing the danger of the trend and heeding his words, evangelicals accommodated themselves to the trend as if it was some kind of a boon to their cause. And in England, a man rose to prominence by the name of David Watson. And he led the charge of relativism into the Church of England. This is what he said. The reason I, here's one quote from him, the reason I travel with a team, gifted as they are in the performing arts, is that they are able to communicate the gospel much more effectively than I could with mere words, end quote. That is an astounding statement. That is an abandonment of the biblical pattern for the proclamation of the truth through words. And it was reflective of the mood of the time. David Watson then became the partner of John Wimber and the, the Vineyard Movement, which we'll say a lot more about in a few weeks, in which doctrine is not even an issue. In fact, John Wimber has said, we are in the process of cataloging our experience so we can come up with a theology. Pure experience. David Watson says, I don't want to preach because the truth can be better communicated through the performing arts. May I remind somebody that Jesus was not a singer, he was a preacher. And John the Baptist was not a singer, he was a preacher. And the apostles were not actors, they were preachers. David Watson went on to criticize the Christian church for concentrating exclusively on the mind. This is what Watson said. Most churches rely heavily on the spoken or written word and then wonder why so few people find the Christian faith to be relevant. He is saying the written word and the spoken word make the Christian faith irrelevant. Irrelevant Christianity is not mental. Irrelevant Christianity is not rational. It is not doctrinal. It is emotional. It is experiential. It is mystical. This movement has come like a flood. The emphasis in the church has gone from preaching doctrine to the mind to give people a greater knowledge of divine truth to doing little more than inducing feelings, inducing emotions, focusing on needs, coupling that relativistic approach with the charismatic movement and with those psychologists who come into the church with their relational stuff and preaching becomes mystical, relational, and relativistic. Worship began to descend and you can see it in many ways, just see it in the music would be one way. Worship began to descend from singing great truths about God 
lyric-centered music to music where sound, rhythm, and harmony dominate to induce warm and fuzzy feelings. Music style moved from that which was classically accompanying the hymns, the great lyrics, to sounds that more, are more similar and familiar to the pop music world. If I can kind of give you a perspective on all of this, I'm sure Satan knew we Christian evangelicals would not buy the theology of liberalism, so he sold us the hermeneutics. What do you mean by that? Satan knew we wouldn't buy their theology, so he sold us their principles of interpretation, so sooner or later we would arrive at their theology. A kind of Christianity where doctrine and conviction are scorned. You go into the typical town, find the pulpit where the man of God clearly and deeply and profoundly and faithfully articulates doctrine, and I'll show you a small group of faithful folk. You find the church where they're hooping and hollering and diving, dancing and jumping, and I'll show you a major crowd in most cases. God's Word will never pass away, but sadly it has been bypassed to allow for the new evangelical relativism. Preachers are comedians, storytellers, and counselors, but not powerful theological heralds and proclaimers of divine truth. In fact, this is so serious, it's gotten to the place where even at the basic issue of the gospel, there's no conviction. In a book called Power Evangelism by John Wimber, and I mention him because he's so popular around the world, in that book called Power Evangelism, in which he instructs the church on how to evangelize, there is no discussion of the gospel. It isn't in the book. The gospel isn't in the book. Yet they give accounts of people getting saved and becoming Christians on the basis of supposed miracles they saw with no gospel preached to them. Peter Wagner says, professor over at Fuller Seminary, that Argentine evangelist Omar Cabrera has people saved before he starts preaching. They're not concerned with doctrine, apparently. I remember speaking at the Full Gospel Businessmen's Committee luncheon, which was one of the most novel experiences of my life. That's a charismatic group, and somebody in the group had mistakenly thought that I had received the baptism of the Spirit and spoken in tongues. And so they invited me to come and give my testimony about tongues. <laughs> what they didn't realize was that, of course, I had not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoken in tongues, and I thought they wanted me to come and, and simply give the biblical view because they were interested in, in hearing what we believe. And so I went in there. They were all ready to hear this great testimony about how I got transformed into being a charismatic, and I was assuming they wanted the straight stuff out of the Word of God on the truth, and so I started to preach. It was the only time in my life that I was actually literally physically pulled out of the pulpit bodily. <laughs> After about 20 minutes, the man grabbed my coat and pulled me down. We went uh, and then got into the pulpit and began to say, we have to pray, let's pray, and he prayed that sometime in the middle of the night God would zap me and I'd burst forth in tongues and he tried to apologize to the crowd and this went on for a while and after it was over, I'll never forget, a man came up to me afterwards and uh, he said, well, that was very interesting and he carried on this little conversation and uh, it was a pretty 
volatile moment. By the way, I went back again. I said I wasn't finished. I do need to finish a few things, and I said some more things, but um, it shook him to the core, believe me. But afterwards, this man said to me, I said, you know, my concern is that, that, that people who are just into this experiential thing aren't even Christians. This is what the man said. He said, well, I've been in this nine years in this group, and he said, this is what I believe. I believe there's this big, long staircase, and you get to the top of the stairs someday, and you knock on the door, and this guy named Jesus comes, and you just hope he lets you in. Nine years and doesn't understand the gospel. Nine years and has no sense of clarity about doctrine. The other day I was doing a radio interview, a two-hour interview, and the host of the program said to me, this is on a Christian station, the host of the program said to me, well, how does a person become a Christian? I said, first of all, to recognize your sinfulness. It is necessary to recognize that I am a sinner and to be willing to turn and repent from my sin and then to recognize that I cannot save myself, that I have no resources within me to redeem myself and cast myself on the mercy of God and to believe in Jesus Christ as God's Son who came into the world and died and paid the price for my sin and rose again for my justification. The host said, you don't believe that everyone who gets saved has to believe all that, do you? I said, yes! Yes! That host said to me, I certainly didn't, didn't deal with any of my sins when I got saved. I said, how did you get saved? This was the reply. I was uh, in drugs, alcohol, living with my boyfriend in science of mind for six years. And one day I just got Jesus' phone number. I said, you just got Jesus' phone number? I just got Jesus' phone number. And I just knew where he was. What in the world are these people experiencing when you don't even lay down clear doctrine at the level of the gospel where are you going to go from there and the cry is as one man said to me when my book on the gospel according to Jesus came out he said your book is divisive your book is divisive want to know something he's right he's right want to know something else doctrine divides People say, oh, doctrine divides, doctrine divides. I say, amen, preach it, doctrine divides. You know what it does? It confronts error. It separates true from false. It makes judgments. Today's climate, however, of unity and the priority of relationships, that's not tolerable. You know, so I believe, I believe that when evangelicals are willing to depreciate doctrine... And when they're willing to set aside unpopular convictions, and they're, when they're willing to stay silent on biblical teaching that offends people in error and sin, opposition will disappear and we can all get together. I believe that. Well, I can start a unity movement, eliminate doctrine, set aside unpopular convictions, don't say anything that offends, and we'll all get together. That isn't any surprise. But you know, some other things are going to disappear too along with doctrine, like truth, conviction, discernment, righteousness, holiness, discipline, true love, and spiritual maturity. They're all gone too. And then God will disappear, Ichabod. That's, that price is too high. 
That will produce a church victimized by hell's deceptions. What do you think Paul had in mind when he said, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth? It is a shame not to rightly divide the truth from error. So the main contributor to this lack of discernment has been the weakening of doctrinal clarity and conviction in the name of unity, in the name of mystical experience, and so forth. And as I said, the liberals couldn't sell us their theology, so they sold us their hermeneutics, relationships, love, unity, mystical experience. And we buy into that, and we'll end up with the same chaos. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. And everybody talking about Jesus, charismatics, neo-orthodox, Roman Catholics, and everybody else don't necessarily know Him. There's a second contributor, and I at least have to get two of these this morning. And this builds on it. Now, and I want you to follow this. I don't want to get too philosophical for you here. The second is this, a failure to be antithetical. A failure to be antithetical. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean to be black and white. In, in debate, in argument, in theology, we talk about thesis and antithesis. A thesis is some truth that's laid down or some idea that's laid down or some concept that's laid down. And here is the opposing concept, black and white, thesis, antithesis. We have to think antithetically. We live in a culture that some say thinks on what you would call a continuum. In other words, there's no black-white there's no right, wrong, true, false, good, bad. There's just this long continuum of relative shades of gray. And everybody sort of is on there somewhere. Religion is subjective. Spiritual experience is subjective. But, but listen, biblical preaching is not relative. It is not subjective. It is absolute. It is sharply black and white. It is pointedly antithetical to error. And I'm not trying to defend myself. I'm just dealing with the texture. But I tell you, the criticism that comes back to me all the time is, you, you are so strong on doctrine. I don't know what else to be, because that is the nature of truth, that truth divides and sets itself against error. We must think antithetically. You hear a thesis, and you must look at an antithesis, the opposite, and test it. And it's absolute. Truth is absolute. Therefore, it rubs people the wrong way. It hits them with conviction. Since worldly thinking pollutes the minds of most churchgoers, and worldly thinking is this big gray area, Nothing is really black and white. Nothing is really right and wrong. I was listening the other day to uh, driving in the car to Barbara DeAngelis on talk radio. And this lady was calling in and she was telling about a relationship she was having with a man whom she wasn't married to and she was living. And, and, she, and this counselor said, well, it, it, it's got to be right for you. It's got to be right for you. There's really nothing that's right or wrong. It just has to be right for you. That's the continuum. And that's the kind of stuff that we're continually being sold. So we have a culture growing up with continuum kind of thinking, that things are not black and white, they're just different shades of gray. Black and white preaching, teaching from Scripture is seen as offensive and fanatical. 
But in the Bible, antithesis is crucial. Discernment is essential. And the Bible just lays things down, black and white. I mean, just follow this thought. From the Garden of Eden with its two trees, one allowed and one forbidden, to the eternal destiny of the human being in heaven or hell, the Bible sets forth two and only two ways, God's way and all other ways. People are said to be saved or lost. They belong to God's people or Satan's people. There is the mount of blessing and the mount of cursing. There is the narrow way and the broad way. There is eternal life and eternal destruction. There are those who are against us and those who are with us. There are those within the kingdom, those without the kingdom. There is life and death, truth and falsehood, good and bad, light and darkness, kingdom of God, kingdom of Satan, love, hatred, spiritual wisdom, wisdom of the world. Christ is said to be the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. He is the only name under the sky by which one may be saved. Everything in Scripture is absolute. It is basic to divine revelation. J. Adams, who is a very well-known preacher and seminary professor, writes what I think is an excellent section in one of his books. Listen to this. Not only will you find such antithetical teaching and much more on nearly every page of the Bible, but even the, dis the construction of the Hebrew language itself seems designed to teach antithesis. Much scriptural poetry, many proverbs, and even some narrative is antithetical in structure. Perhaps you have wondered about the principle underlying the clean and unclean distinctions of the Old Testament. This is very interesting. Various relationships or rationales have been given for some of these distinctions, yet many seem to be purely arbitrary. You know, why clean and unclean animals and all of that in the, in the laws that God gave Israel? This is what he suggests. May I suggest that all problems of arbitrariness are resolved when you see the clean-unclean system as a means of alerting the Jew to the fact that all day long, every day, in whatever he does, he must consciously choose God's way. Choices about food, clothing, farming techniques, justice, health care, holidays, and methods of worship were made either God's way or some other way. In other words, the clean-unclean system was designed to develop in God's people an antithetical mentality. Forbidding the mixing of materials in clothing, for example, doesn't seem so arbitrary, after all, when considered in the light of the biblical concern to create an antithetical posture toward life. But with pastors and people alike growing up in an environment that stresses continual thinking, antithesis is dulled as more and more people attempt to integrate sociology, psychology, business management principles with the Scripture. Teachers in Christian colleges now consider it one of the key tasks of Christian higher education to seek to integrate the professor's faith with his learning. The key task, you see, is no longer to distinguish God's ways from others, but to find places of agreement. That's a dangerous thing. The psalmist, listen to this, Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. There's a clear line drawn. They're over here, we're over here. But this kind of continuum thinking has contributed to the climate where discernment is unnecessary, unthinkable, and to pursue it is foolish, to pursue it is divisive. Are you ready for this? To pursue it is evil. You're an evil person if you draw lines. You're an evil person if you think in absolutes. You're an evil person if you have convictions. Discernment can only thrive 
in an environment of doctrinal absolutes. Listen to Titus 1.9, holding fast, there's that same term about holding to what is good, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, the doctrine, holding fast your doctrine so that you can exhort with sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. We're in the refutation business as well as the affirmation business. When elders were to be selected, they were to have the ability to refute error. So the second cause, I think, is this, this failure to be antithetical, this rejection of absolutes, which ties into the first one. Let me give you a third, and we'll probably stop with this one. This is very important. Another contributor to this lack of discernment, and I'm going to follow this through, and when we're done, I'm going to teach you how to be a discerning person. The third one, the third cause in this lack of discernment is a preoccupation, listen carefully, a preoccupation with image and influence as the key to evangelization. A preoccupation with image and influence as the key to evangelization. In other words, you hear this all the time, that if we are going to win the world, we have to win their favor. The church has got to become a beloved agency. They've got to like us. So we don't want to fight for truth. We don't want to be too doctrinal. We don't want to offend anybody because image and influence is the key to evangelization. I recently saw a brand new book in a, in a bookstore, in fact, this week, called User-Friendly Churches. Big selling book. Now what we're supposed to do is market ourselves so that we become a friendly place. Well, we certainly want to be loving and gracious, but one sermon would convince most people that we're not all about just being friendly, we're all about preaching truth. The man who once took his stand for truth and preached it is now asked to take his seat. He's a problem. We don't fight for truth. We don't boldly proclaim truth because we're afraid we might offend an unbeliever. And after all, if anybody's going to get evangelized, it's going to be because they find us a friendly place, a nice place. We want to be popular with the world because we believe that's the key to evangelization. Imagine that. We are into this whole deal that the image of the church and its non-threatening structure is the key to evangelization. This kind of movement believes that the church will offend unbelievers if it preaches sin or hell or repentance or the cross, and it'll lose its prestige. So the new trend is for the church to build an image of love and care and being very nice and make everybody comfortable and make everybody happy and entertain the unbeliever and make sure they're never offended and make sure they are very, very comfortable. And the bottom line is if they like us, they'll like Jesus. It's the bottom line. Influence and image is much more important than Scripture. I don't believe the church gathers for any other reason than to be edified. We come together to worship God as believers and for you to be edified. And we scatter to evangelize. We go out to evangelize. And you want to be as loving and kind and gracious as you can be in presenting the truth.
but you don't mitigate the truth because you believe influence and image is going to evangelize anybody. This kind of trend, by the way, beloved, and I'm going to be pretty pointed in a minute, has been coming for a long time. A long time. I remember hearing about the Billy Graham crusade in the city of New York. And there was a tremendous cry among evangelicals across this country that something, something new had happened. Because for the first time in evangelistic history in America, liberals, people who were not evangelical fundamental Christians, were invited to cooperate in that meeting in 1955. And ecumenical evangelism was born. That is the kind of evangelism that says we want everybody to come so we'll get the Catholics and we'll get the liberals and we'll get the neo-Orthodox and the people who don't believe the Bible and, and we'll get them all together and we'll get them all involved. Carl Henry, who has been a tremendous contributor to assessing the church, says if you look at the early years of the Billy Graham organization, you will find that its overall policy was to attain prestige and influence for evangelicals. To do this, there had to be a successful image, and that would not be possible, they believed, unless every effort was made to avoid any division with those who didn't believe the Bible. That was a new day. 1955, brand new day. The Graham organization, wrote Henry, was not ready to forfeit dialogue with the ecumenical leaders and churches because it feared a loss of influence. That showed up in Fuller Seminary. Edward John Carnell, who was on the faculty at Fuller, said, we, and I'm quoting him, we need prestige desperately. End quote. And they went after it. And they wanted faculty members who got their degrees from the elite Eastern liberal institutions I remember one faculty member saying in a meeting when I was over there at Fuller Seminary, if I have to publicly and outwardly identify with evangelicals, forget it. They desperately wanted the prestige. They desperately wanted the association with the influential Eastern elite and even the dead Germans who spawned liberalism. And when the church began to say, we're going to have to have influence, and we're going to have to have prestige, and we're going to have to have popularity, we're going to have to be intellectually accepted, and we're going to have to embrace these people and show that we really like them, and they're going to have to like us a lot if they're ever going to like our Jesus, it made a major turn. A major turn. Paul the Apostle said, we are the scum. We are the dregs. We are the off-scouring of the world. Jesus said, they hated me, they'll hate you. But we've gotten sophisticated. This view believes that our prestige, our influence, and our popularity is what gets people to the place where they'll believe the gospel. How absolutely wrong that is. How absolutely wrong. Real spiritual men fight. And real spiritual men pay the price for bold, clear, loving proclamation of the truth. What I'm seeing happen, I could call the feminization of the church. So soft. Returning to Martin Lloyd-Jones' biography for a moment and thinking about it, I spent a day with his family last summer, Patricia and I did. His grandson, Christopher Catherwood, has written much about him that is very helpful to me. One perspective of this godliest of men was the sad fact that he was perceived in a negative way. It's amazing in the light of his life. J.I. Packer said he was the godliest man he ever met. But he was perceived in a negative way, even though he was a virtuous man. And the reason he was perceived negatively was because he was so theological, he was so antithetical 
and he believed that evangelization occurred under the powerful preaching of the truth, not by establishing prestige and image. And I want to share an excerpt from the book again that talks about this issue. Christopher Catherwood wrote, As years went by, Martin Lloyd-Jones acquired an unfortunate negative image in the eyes of many. The explanation of this is bound to be one of the main areas of controversy in any interpretation of his life. In his own mind, the issue came down to differing attitudes to Scripture. He saw that the elements of warning and of opposition to error were essential parts of any true commitment to the Bible and therefore believed that the disapproval of polemics, debate, in the Christian church is a very serious matter. Accordingly, he expected no approval from those who accepted the prevailing attitude which put love first and treated arguments over doctrine as unchristian. It was that very attitude, he believed, which was responsible for the removal of the note of authority from the pulpit. The charge of dogmatism and the dislike of reproof and correction were criticisms of Scripture itself. One of the main characteristics of Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry was thus both an offense to those who were supporters of the spirit of the modern pulpit and an inspiration to those who believed that a return to authority in preaching was a great need. The latter were profoundly thankful for the very thing which the first group had found faulty. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, listen to this, had a penetrating and courageous diagnosis of the present situation. This is an age of appeasement, not in the political and international sense, but in the realm of Christian affairs and of the church. Winston Churchill is now acclaimed and almost idolized. In the 30s, he was severely criticized as an impossible person because he knew what he believed. He believed it, and he caused disturbance by criticizing the policy of appeasement. So it is today. Strong men who stand by their principles are today regarded as being difficult, self-assertive, and non-cooperative. End quote. How is it that the church can ever come to the point where it succumbs to that? where it believes that influence, prestige, and image are more effective, more effective in fulfilling the calling to preach the gospel than the preaching of God's truth. I tell you, it shocks me to find how there's an increasing number of people who believe that faithfulness to the church by the Word of God in other words, building the church according to Scripture, it seems to me there's an increasing number of people who don't see that as an issue. That's not how to get the job done. They don't believe anymore that if you're faithful to the truth, the Holy Spirit will bless you and honor you, however small and despised your work might be. You've got to become marketed in an image that is acceptable. Beloved, we're an offense. We know that. We are an offense. We are an offense. Every time we, we get in the newspapers again, I'm reminded, we are an offense. We're a lot more offensive than they know. They're just not around here enough. <laughs> if they came every week, they could write an article on how offensive we are. We are an offense to all in error. We are an offense to all in rejection of the truth. We are an offense to all those who refuse Jesus Christ. We are an offense to all those who live in sin. And to mitigate that offense is ridiculous. Because it is precisely what the Holy Spirit is intending to produce. He wants to convict 
because conviction and confrontation and conviction leads to salvation. Those offended should be offended. Well, we have a lack of discernment in the church in spite of what Paul told us in this text because of our weak theology, our failure to be antithetical and a preoccupation with a worldly image. This is how it is out there. And you can thank the Lord that God by His Spirit and His grace alone has led this church down a path where we want to have a strong theology. We want to be antithetical and be black and white and absolute about truth. And we're not preoccupied with our worldly image. Not at all. We're preoccupied with speaking the truth in love. We'll be as gracious and loving and gentle as we can be, but we will not mitigate on the message. Well, I have a few more for next time. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we hear the simple, straightforward words of Paul, but examine everything, everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Lord, make us discerning people. We want always to speak the truth in love. We want to have the, the gentleness and compassion of Christ. But we must speak the truth. We must have convictions, clear theology. We must be antithetical to error and sin. And we must never believe that the church's power is in its image rather than in its message. We must never believe that we could accomplish with the performing arts what can only be accomplished with the spoken, proclaimed, and written Word. Father, help us to be discerning. And if in a fog, indeed, to look back and see the causes of that fog and ask that Your Spirit would give us the capability to make choices, that we might choose what is true and right, that we may know your blessing and give you glory. These things we ask humbly in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God
Richard Radio with Todd Free. This is a very, very helpful. If you are a pagan, this is Richard Radio. What? Why? Why are you talking like that? I can't think of anyone you'd be mocking. I'm not mocking anybody. My tongue is just yeah. stuck to my cheek, and I can't, I can't seem to get my tongue unstuck from my cheek. Ah, uh, 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 tongue and cheek, got it. This is... This is... This is Thank you very much. Sure. How did this prove... Any Christian in 10 easy steps, if you happen to be a pagan and you're listening, we are here to help. You wish to war against Jesus Christ. That is, after all, the object of your hatred. It's not against Christians. We love you, despite how you feel about us. Ultimately, your axe is trying to be a ground against Jesus Christ. Not a wise decision, because if you think Jesus is some meek little shepherd who's kind of kind of all soft, doesn't have any calluses on his hands, you really should consider the description of Jesus in, say, Revelation 19 and 20, when he returns with a shout, riding on a horse, with his thigh dripping with blood. Why? He's going to war. This is his peculiar work. Our God is not a warrior per se, but he goes to war. Why? Because he is jealous for his fame, his name, and his reputation, and he will execute judgment on the world. No, no, no O.J. getting away with a crime. None of that. He's going to make sure every misdeed is accounted for. That includes you. And if you think that it is wise, when the sky is rolled back like a scroll to treat him with anger today well good luck and i mean that good luck nevertheless we're here to help you disprove any christian in 10 easy steps i think we'll get the point pretty fast number one completely ignore the scriptures just don't pay any attention to what we say when we quote the bible until you decide to randomly quote a verse, maybe two, that supports your position, then that's just the way to undermine us right there. Don't believe in the Bible, but then if you think you've got a Bible verse that supports your point, feel free to use it, because that isn't duplicitous at all. Uh, The second way you can undermine a, a Christian and disprove us, appeal to the red letters. Yo, they have magical power. They can be taken on their own. That's all you need to do is quote those. No other context, no other consideration of any other book in the Bible. You can just ignore it all, especially the part that completely refute your own point. I think there's a lot of Christians who actually do that. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, they call themselves red-letter Christians. Number three, definitely ignore the part where Jesus talks about sinners. Yeah, that's That's a good thing. It's also suggested that you avoid parts... Talking directly to final judgment, the divinity of Christ, stay away from those. If all else fails, tell them the story of Jesus is a knockoff of the stories of Horus and Mithra and Aishnam. If they somehow manage to pull up the extremely well-documented reputations against this, tell them the historical Jesus didn't exist. That one works like a charm. Every time. You know what? We've gone through three of these, and I've heard each and every one of these, frankly. 
one more. More If any Christian, huh? More More than than once. Yeah, exactly. If any Christian gives you pushback about how you view a peculiar, no, a particular social issue, just call them unloving, hypocritical, judgmental, bigoted. That, That works every time. Just throw some names. Here's a tip if you're a pro. Quote, do not judge from Luke 6.37, but ignore the part where he speaks of right judgment. Who is anyone to judge? If they say God is able to judge, tell them you don't believe in the magic sky fairy anyhow. So that's irrelevant. See what they did right there? Quote the Bible to, and on and on it goes. Now, if you think that, is mangling of the Bible for the sake of winning a case. Brace yourself for that. You're going to think that this is a joke. Jesse Johnson and Cripplegate put together five verses that are used to justify abortion. Now, these are used, I'm pretty certain, by unbelievers, but they're also used by professing believers who try to justify the intentional taking of an innocent human life. This is I got to tell you something. You could put me in a room with a Bible for a long time, and I don't think I would have come up with this. Clever? Yes. Totally wrong? Absolutely. The first Bible verse used to justify abortion. All right. Here it is. Genesis 2-7. I'll read it. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Tony. How is that verse used to justify abortion? Can you imagine, Joey? It looks like you've got it. I've heard that one before. And what they have it? What I've heard is that the soul doesn't really enter the body until they take their first breath. There you go, right there. And so they use Genesis really two seven. Human being until it's born. Yeah. Here's here's the problem with using that verse thusly. Who were the parents of Adam and Eve? In what womb did they reside? You say, well, they didn't have parents, and there there was no womb. Exactly. And that is why this is a unique historical description of a one-time event. Not all children forever. End of that verse. Number two, Genesis 9-7. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. Because apparently, these people like to use the King James Version. So, the application to this is, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth. So, procreation and provision, equally important. And if you can't provide for those children, then you should not be for for, for life. You should be happy to let people have abortions. Not kidding. They will use the tripe, well, there's, nobody wants to adopt these kids, so everybody should be able to have an abortion. All right, there's lots of people who want to adopt, and it's a bit of a travesty that there are kids who are not provided for. We all agree on that, wouldn't we? So is the solution to kill them or to simply make provision for them? And furthermore, how's about denying the most essential component of fruitfulness, you know, life. Verse number 3, John fifteen two. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Application, sit down, you might just, you might fall over. A woman purged brings forth more fruit. 
Do I need to respond to that? The argument goes, by having an abortion at a young age, the woman is giving herself the potential to have more children and have a better life. Conveniently overlooked in this is that many women after an abortion find themselves unable to have children at all or so wounded and scarred that it lingers with them the rest of their life. Oh, and it's still the intentional taking of an innocent human life. Number four, John 7, 23. Are you angry with me because I have made a man every bit as whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge by righteous judgment. Here's how they use it. Law prefers to avoid the greater evil by bringing about the lesser of evils. See what they did right there? Uh, That's using the lesser evil argument. But that only works if it's granted that abortion is evil. So thanks for at least admitting that. But Jesus didn't kill the man with the withered hand, because life with only one hand would be unfair. Instead, he gave the man healing. If a child is going to be born disformed, we don't kill it. We help it. Number five, James 2.14, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man says he has faith and has not works, can faith save him? Application, faith is expressed not by words but by deeds. So in other words, the abortion doctor is actually doing something about the problem. So he's the one with real faith. No, it's not a real faith. It is a pursuit of power and money over and against the lives of countless children. It's not a story of helping victims of rape or incest. It's a story of harming them by playing off of fear and exploiting their victimhood, and they are indeed victims. Do you think that that was nonsense? Indeed it is, but those are Bible verses that people actually try to use to support abortion. Nonsense. Furthermore, not only can these be deflated quickly with one swift poke, how's about all of the Bible verses that talk about the forbidding of taking of innocent human life? And that's exactly what is inside of the womb. I'm just trying to pretend I'm torn and that I don't want to sneak in a plug for preborn.org slash wretched who tries to convince women to keep their babies and shows them ultrasounds, which you could pay for at preborn.org slash wretched. So it's not that I'm, I'm actually torn. I'm just trying to pretend that I feel bad about having to tell you about that because I, I, I don't. It's a great ministry. If you'd like more babies to live and more mommies to get saved, preborn.org slash wretched, preborn.org slash wretched. This is Wretched Radio. Thanks for listening to the Wretched Segment du Jour. If you'd like more Wretched, you can listen to the most current stream for free at wretched.tv slash listen, or you can become a club member and listen to our entire archive. Wretched, reaching the lost, equipping the saints, and strengthening the local church. That was from, like I said, Wretched, and that's their radio program, and you could... um, Listen, like it says, wretched.tv slash listen, and then to join their club for, it pays for, um, helps their show, and also that she listen to all the, um, podcasts, it's, uh, wretched.tv slash club, wretched.tv slash club, and 
Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Our website is truthbetoldradio.com, truthbetoldradio.com. And I'm going to do this from uh, WWTT, what, when we understand text here on Truth Be Told Radio. An eclipse has never been a sign of any prophecy. False prophet Jonathan Kahn, best-selling author of The Harbinger, loves to point to signs in the sky, but even he admits they have no prophetic significance. The solar eclipse. Can God do something? Yes. Does God have to do something? No. These things can be signs of judgments or other things, but they also can be just a regular day. So be ready either way. But if that's the case, he loses credibility. So in the same video, he goes back to saying these things do mean something, and he's got a book about it. The Bible says that the stars, these things are signs, but what are they signs of? The paradigm is going to be released. This is the most explosive book I've ever written. It's very much like the Harbinger, Mist Ancient Mystery, the master blueprint of what's happening now, and it touches everything. The people came to Jesus and said, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But you have seen me and do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and I will never cast them out. For I have come from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is the sign from heaven, so look to him when we understand the text. Once again, neither a lunar nor a solar eclipse is a sign of judgment, no matter what these loony false prophets say. Because the Gentiles go by the sun for their calendar, a solar eclipse represents judgment coming upon a nation. A lunar eclipse, because Israel goes by the moon, refers to judgment coming upon Israel. That's not anywhere in the Bible. But what about where it says the sun will be darkened and the moon turned to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord? These are references to supernatural signs in the heavens, but eclipses are natural and calculable. NASA has mapped every eclipse that will occur for the next 1,000 years. They know exactly where they will be visible from down to the mile and how long their duration will be down to the second. How are they able to do that? Because they're prophets? No, and neither are these other guys claiming eclipses are signs of judgment. God created the sun and the moon for signs and seasons. Signs in this context meaning memorial or holy days. So since they mark time, they run like, well, clockwork. Psalm 8.3 says, I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Psalm 104.19 says, he made the moon to mark the season. The sun knows it's time for setting. Eclipses are not signs of judgment. They are a wondrous spectacle of God's created order. John 3.19 says, the appearing of Christ is the sign of judgment. So repent and worship him before he appears a second time to judge mankind. But if the Lord tarries, expect the next eclipse to happen on time, as God ordained it, when we understand the text. That is when we understand text. You can find them at www.utt.com, also on YouTube, and like I said, www.utt.com. And thanks for listening to us here at Truth Be Told Radio. I'm your host, Mr. Cantrilla. Let's see. What I'm going to do for you next is 
to play a song kicking old school here on Tributory. We kick it old school. 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 Come on, come on, don't miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes, winds up in a pocket. God's Word instead of evolutionary 
ideas, it's no surprise that we come to different conclusions. Over the next two days, we're going to see how a different starting point influences our position on climate change. Learn more about starting points, creation versus evolution, and God's Word at AnswersRadio.com. Visit AnswersRadio.com to sign up for daily insights from apologist Ken Ham. Different starting points. This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's Word. Creationists don't deny climate change, don't believe what Bill Nye the science guy claims, but we do deny the assumptions behind the claims of climate change alarmists. That's because we have a different starting point as we look at history. Much of climate change data is based off the ice cores. Now many scientists believe these layers represent hundreds of thousands of years and include a record of our climate. They believe our climate has remained stable for 12,000 years, so a slight rise in temperature must be caused by humans. But since we start with the Bible's history, we reject the long ages of these layers. And we recognize the significance of a catastrophic event in our history. Ah, but that's for tomorrow. Listen to this program again. Or view a complete transcript when you go to AnswersRadio.com. You can also sign up for daily emails from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. That was, um, like I said, Answers in Genesis. And you can see I'm at AnswersInGenesis.com. Let's see what I'm going to do next. I'm going to play a song for you. This is Saved by Goldfish here on Tributary. I have a Bible that I read. I know the truth and I believe. I go to church with my friends. I have a joy that never ends. Not because of anything I've done. There's a Save 
organized culture and even the church. Let's continue to look at climate change. We've seen that the claims of climate change alarmists are partly based on an old Earth worldview. They ignore one global catastrophe, the flood of Noah's day. Around 4,300 years ago, the world that once existed was completely destroyed by floodwaters. The surface of the globe was reshaped as plate tectonics moved continents around. Mountains and valleys were formed. Volcanoes spewed ash and dust into the atmosphere, cooling the air and warming the oceans. And after the flood, the conditions became perfect for an ice age. The flood affected the climate radically. Discussion about climate change needs to take this event into account. Want to learn more about climate change and find out about our life-size Noah's Ark? Visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll get solid answers at AnswersRadio.com. Talking monkeys? This is Ken Ham, and our life-size Noah's Ark and zoo are open south of Cincinnati. In an evolutionary view, how did speech evolve? Well, evolutionists have thought for a long time that speech came about when we evolved the equipment to form the sounds we make. But new research shows monkeys are able to make the same sounds we can. They even alter their calls to alert other monkeys of specific kinds of danger. Now, this communication ability is remarkable. But you won't ever catch a monkey reciting Shakespeare. Why? Because their brains aren't wired for speech. Evolutionists now believe speech evolved after the brain was rewired. Starting with the Bible, we know God created Adam and Eve to speak from the beginning. God's design in monkeys is amazing, but they don't speak. Learn more about supposed ape men, human evolution, and God's unique creation of Adam and Eve at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged at AnswersRadio.com.
Dinosaurs, they're not a mystery. This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine, Ancestors. Quadrupeds are thought to be the evolutionary ancestors of dinosaurs, but they're now found in the same rock layers as dinosaurs, including the supposed oldest rocks that contain dinosaurs, so they can't be dinosaur ancestors. Now, evolutionists say they'll have to rewrite dino history. Well, the popular history of dinosaurs does need a rewrite. They're not a mystery if you start with the Bible. Dinosaurs were land creatures, so they were created on day six. Two of every kind were taken on the ark. The rest drowned, many preserved as fossils. Those that survived on the ark eventually died off due to the same things that caused species to go extinct today. There's no mystery. Want to know more about dinosaurs and the Bible? Visit us at AnswersRadio.com and sign up for free insights from Ken Ham. Delivered right to your inbox at AnswersRadio.com. That was from Answer to Genesis. And before that, we had a song by Goldfish, uh, Praise and Shackles Praise Him. Uh, yeah, it's called Shackles Praise Him. And thanks for listening to me here on Trippy Color Review. I'm going to play another song. This is called I'll Fly Away here on Trippy Color Review.
that's it for Truthy Tall Radio. Thanks for listening, and hope you join me next time, 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. This is time, Sunday, and those listening on the archives, thanks for that, too. And go out with Yancey and Friends with the VI Really, and bye for now.